We're going to now spend some time looking at the scriptures together, uh, and I'm going to open up the Christmas story from Matthew, Matthew chapter 1. We're continuing our Advent focus. Uh, Advent literally means the arrival of a notable person or event. And so traditionally, when Christians use the word Advent, what they're talking about is the arrival of Jesus. And so at Grace Bible Church, we are a very non-traditional church, and yet we're trying to kind of draw on a lot of different traditions throughout church history. So what we've done is we've put together a devotional for you. Uh, We've got these online if you're interested in learning how to just slow down during this Christmas season, read scriptures together, sing some hymns together. There's some suggestions of different things you can try um, as we really just take hold of a holiday that there's a tension here where uh, it's at its root a Christian holiday, right? Christmas is about Jesus, but it's also the most popular holiday in the world. So you've got all these pagans and uh, big businesses kind of trying to grab hold of this holiday to celebrate Jesus and make it more about money or parties or other things. So what we want to do is kind of grab hold of it, build a bridge to talk to our neighbors, use it as a time for our own selves and our own homes to reflect on Jesus and grow in our faith in Him. So that's what we're attempting to do with this Advent devotional guide. Recommend it to you whether you've got kids or not. Um, You can grab them online on our website, or you can get paper copies here somewhere in the building if you're here in the building. We're focusing on the themes of hope, love, joy, and peace. This week is Love Week as we look at the Christmas story from Matthew chapter 1. Also, a couple other resources I want to recommend to you during this time. Uh, The Adventure of Christmas. This book just takes the highlights of all the various kind of bizarre, disconnected Christmas traditions that different people practice and try to trace the line back to how that at some point had some kind of Christian notion connected to it. So just kind of helping you think through, when I do a thing, how can I do it in a way that that honors Jesus, that makes Jesus the focus? So that's a helpful book. And then also, uh, Chris got me excited about this when we sang the Hallelujah song from Handel's Messiah. Um, That song is a fantastic song. We've loved singing that the last few years. And there is a Christmas Advent book called Hallelujah that I also want to recommend. Oh, I dropped something. Um, I want to recommend this book as well, Hallelujah, edited by Cindy Rollins. And what this one does is it takes you through meditations on Handel's Messiah. So this is kind of a little more advanced. If you want to try to learn some of that classic music, we sang pieces of it this morning. Great, great stuff there. So I recommend that as well as another another opportunity for you to grow in understanding who Jesus is through a lot of different ways that Christians have celebrated that over the years. So we're going to look at the Scripture now. We base everything here on what the Bible has to say. Who is Jesus? What does He have to say to us? Today we're focusing in on love. And as we focus in on love, what we want to ask ourselves is how does the Bible define love versus how does our culture define love? We're in a culture that's very confused about love and has a lot of different ideas about what love is. I remember growing up in my home, we had a piano in our house, uh, a lot of musicians in our house growing up, and we had a lot of sheet music, popular music, Christian music, a lot of things that would always be out on the piano. And there was one book of sheet music from a movie that came out in the 70s, and this was a famous love story called... Love Story. I think that's what it was called. Now I can't even remember. Yeah, Love Story. It's in my notes somewhere. It was called Love Story with Ryan O'Neill and some lady actress. And this movie in the 70s had this famous quote that was on the cover of this book. And so I read this multiple times as a child. And this was the quote from this movie, Love Story. This is a quote. 
Love means never having to say you're sorry. Have you all ever heard that quote before? Love means never having to say you're sorry. Biblically, that's incorrect, okay? (laughs) Biblically, that's incorrect. It's interesting. Actually, Ryan O'Neill, who is the star of this movie, made another movie a few years later where that same line was used and then made fun of it. Someone else said it, and his character responded, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. So even pagans make fun of that line sometimes, recognizing that that seems like a shallow definition of love. I want to start with that, but I want you to think, how do you define love? How is love defined where you grew up, in your favorite songs, in your favorite movies? I see two really common ways that our culture defines love. One is attraction, just physical attraction to someone, often sexual attraction. That's a common way we define love. Now, the Scripture blesses attraction as a part of the human experience, but it's like, that's not actually love, right? That's not how the Bible defines love. Another way we often define it is just niceness, right? Feelings or actions of niceness towards someone. That's a little closer to the biblical definition of love. Are there a couple of words in the New Testament for affection or brotherly love, kindness? That's pretty common, but still that's not the primary biblical definition of love. Here's the simplest definition we could use. Love saves. Love saves. So when we celebrate love as one of the themes of the birth of Jesus, what we're saying is that God loved us so much he sent his son into the world to save us, to live a human life so he can relate to us. He's lived the kind of life that you and I have lived. He suffered in every way, Hebrews tells us, yet without sin. He's been tempted in every way. He knows what it's like to be hurt and betrayed like you and me, and yet he was faithful to God. So he lived the life that we were supposed to live, and then he died a sacrificial death to take our place, and then he rose from the grave proving and promising that he's actually conquered sin and death for us. That is the New Testament definition of love. Now let's see where it starts in Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the definition of love. This is where love starts in the New Testament. Love is a verb. It's not just a feeling, but it's something that we do. 
And the only way that we can do love properly is if we recognize that God started it all. My wife and I got married very young, and we came from broken homes, confused backgrounds. We were new Christians, and we decided, you know what, the only way we're going to get this right is if we look to Jesus and his word. And so we engraved in our wedding rings 1 John 4.19, which says, we love because he first loved us. We've made many mistakes. We've made a lot of errors, and we've stumbled along the way, but we forgive each other because God in Christ forgave us. We know how to love each other because we have this picture of perfect love that we aspire towards as we stumble and forgive and lean on God's grace. That's the ideal. The definition of love is what God did for us. And as we understand that definition and understand better who God is and what he's done for us, as we receive that even by faith, then we'll be able to love one another. So let me pray for us, and then we'll unpack this in more detail. God, we praise you that you are our God. We see that you've made all things. We know you exist. We stumble and struggle to follow you and to live up to everything you made us for. So we thank you, God, that you loved us enough to give your son for us. So God, at this Christmas time, we pray that in the busyness and the craziness, we would be able to slow down and just enjoy the richness of who you are and what you've done for us. Help us to reflect and draw our neighbors and friends in to reflect on what Christmas is really about, who you are, how you came to us as a baby, the incarnation, the wonder of all of this. God, help us to worship you. You are so good. You are so great. We thank you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Before I move on to the text, I also meant to say thanks to our volunteers, to our staff, to our many leaders that are helping us as we Gear back up. We just started a third service today. We're, we're doing more and more every week. The children's and youth uh, staff had hosted a movie night last night, which was awesome with the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And uh, we've got the newcomers lunch today and other things coming up. I'm just thankful for you. So those of you that are in the room, I'm thankful for you. Those of you, those of you that are not in the room, I'm thankful for you. Uh, as you folks that are not already involved continue to jump in and serve on a team, we'll be able to serve our city more and more. We'll be able to broadcast the good news of the gospel to more and more people. So thank you. Thank you for those of you that are just beginning to get involved. Thank you to those of you that have been involved for a long time. We're very thankful. You're living out this definition of love, so I appreciate that. Um, As we move through the text, I want to focus in on two big ideas. For those of you that have heard me preach a lot, you're probably upset by this. I usually do three big ideas. This is going to be two, okay? So Whenever you cut your steak, you know, you cut it in normal ways. I always tend to cut the text into three parts. This one, though, just seems obviously in in two halves. Um, And so here are the two big ideas. Love saves us from our frame of reference. That's number one. Second half is love saves us from our sin. Okay? Pretty simple outline. Big idea is love saves. That's how God defines love. And it's broken in this text in two halves. Love saves us from our frame of reference, and love saves us from our sins, okay? Let's look at part one, love saves us from our frame of reference. Now, there's a lot of different ways to think about this. Frame of reference, in its simplest sense, just means like how you see life, how you frame things, right? I grabbed a picture of someone putting a frame on the wall. You put frames around important things, important documents we frame so that we can focus on them. Uh, paintings and pictures we put in frames so that we can focus on them. 
this is a way that we frame what we see. It's a way we focus on what's important. Sometimes this is described as worldview, how you see the world. And parts of our frame of reference, parts of our worldview are accidental. It just comes from the way we were raised and our culture and our personality. And parts of them are purposeful. As followers of Jesus, we want to more and more conform our frame of reference to what God tells us about the world. Recognize, hey, I've got a frame of reference. I grew up in a culture, right? Uh, None of us are completely culture-free. We all have a worldview. We all have a frame of reference. And then more and more conform that to the frame of reference that God gives us in the Scriptures. That's why we spend time every week studying the Bible. We believe it speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus. Charles Taylor is a famous philosopher that wrote a book, I think about 10 or 20 years ago, called The Secular Age. And I have never read the book uh, myself. I've read reviews of the book because he's like way beyond me, right? It's like this thousand-page book of philosophy. But a lot of Christians that are smarter than me have read it, have written reviews of it. There's one that I would recommend to you by James Smith called How to Not Be Secular. And it's a review of Taylor's work. Taylor is actually a believer, a Catholic believer, um, and he's just kind of making philosophical observations on the frame of reference that our current culture has. And the way he describes it is the imminent frame. The imminent frame. What does the word imminent mean? It means close. What he's saying is that we are so deep into empiricism. This is another word for the scientific age. That means we're so deep in it that all we can see are the things that are very close to us. Our culture as a whole has lost the ability to believe in the transcendent and to believe in God and to believe in the supernatural. And why this is important for us as those who believe in God is we just have to recognize that there is this constant pressure pushing on us all the time to not pay attention to the supernatural, right? So we can say, oh, well, that's not me. I believe in the supernatural, But our culture is constantly training us to just focus on the imminent frame. That's what I want you to understand from Charles Taylor's work. And like I said, I cheated and read James Smith's work, How to Not Be Secular. What he's saying is we just have to recognize that the culture is constantly telling you that. Just look at what's close. Just look at the scientific method. Just look at what's natural. Focus in tighter and tighter and tighter. What we're actually going to see is Joseph was living a little bit in the imminent frame. Joseph, like us, a believer, but he was pressured by ordinary life to just believe in what he could see, taste, touch, and smell, right? So let's see this in the story. Matthew 1.18, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, betrothed is like stronger than our engagement and weaker than our marriage culturally. Um, So it was like our marriage in that it was official and binding, And to break that meant a divorce. It was like our engagement in that they hadn't actually started living together and being intimate together yet, right? Uh, So they were betrothed, which meant in their culture, in order to get out of that, there had to be a divorce because it was already a binding contract and covenant. So Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, pregnant. Verse 19, and her husband Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly, right? Because we often get this mixed up. We think, well, they lived in Bible times, so they believed in miracles happening every day, right? 
we're smart modern people with our imminent frame of scientific reference. We know miracles don't happen every day, right? We kind of get mixed up and we forget they lived in the same scientific world we live in, right? Like they didn't think that babies came from storks. Did you know that? Maybe you're confused about that. Ancient people understood how the real world works. They understood science. Maybe they didn't have the same kind of technological breakthroughs we have with superconductors and cell phones, but they understood basic biology, right? They probably knew more about it in some ways than we did, right? They lived closer to animal husbandry and death than we do, so they had an intimate understanding of how these things work. So when his wife becomes pregnant, that means in their world, just like it would in our world, that means she's been unfaithful. And according to the law and his own common sense, then the right thing to do would be to divorce her. Now, we see a little tenderness in Joseph here that he wanted to do it quietly, right? It says he didn't want to put her to shame. He was just, so he wanted to do the right thing. He wanted to obey God's law. He's going to divorce her for her adultery, which he was assuming, right? Because he lived in the imminent frame, just like we do. He's assuming, well, of course, there's nothing miraculous happening here. This is just what everybody knows happens. And yet, there was an intervention. Verse 20. As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David... So, son of David, defining who he is, you're a descendant of King David. You might have a descendant yourself that is an heir to the throne. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So the angel is revealing to him, this is supernatural. He's he's breaking apart his frame of reference. He's saying something else is going on here. There's something more than just the obvious natural explanation for things here. What I want you to see before we move on is that the Bible affirms a natural worldview. The Bible just says there's a natural worldview plus more. Does that make sense? The Bible says, yeah, science and observation is very helpful. Read Proverbs, read Ecclesiastes, right? There is a natural world and we are to make sense of it and there are natural laws. The Bible affirms that. The Bible is not anti-science. Bible just says there's more. Bible says that when we see creation and we see the natural world, we should know there is a creator and a designer who exists. And we should give praise to him. So it doesn't tell us to reject the natural world or to reject science. It tells us to just keep our minds open that there's more. There's more than our frame of reference. Joseph had this imminent, close frame of reference, just like we do. We live our lives in the natural world, right? When you get up in the morning, you still expect gravity to work. You don't think, I'm just going to, maybe when I get out of my bed, I'll float this morning, right? Like nobody expects that. You know that the natural laws are probably going to still be in place, but as believers, Joseph and us, we also have to maintain an openness to the Holy Spirit intervening and, and breaking some of the laws of nature, right? We've got to stay open-minded to this. Another thing I want to emphasize is in the biblical worldview, miracles are unusual. There are branches of Christianity that will pull at your heart and say, if you walk with Jesus, then miracles will happen every day. And we just need to be careful about that. We need to expect God to do miraculous things, but not make miracles normative. Because if miracles are normative, then they're not miracles anymore, right? Supernatural means not natural, 
So we have to have an openness to God intervening, breaking into our world, but we also have to recognize, but we live in a normal world. And the biggest miracle in the New Testament, we're going to talk about in the next section, but let me preview it here. The biggest miracle is, comes in two parts. Miracle number one, people trust in Jesus and are forgiven for their sins. Miracle number two, people who trust in Jesus are changed by the Holy Spirit, and we begin to love other people the way that God has loved us. That's the biggest miracle. If you're longing for God to do the miraculous in your life, will you pray that he'll act in those ways? That he will help you to recognize his forgiveness? And then he will transform your character to love others. So Jesus here is being born supernaturally. This is a clue to his identity. And again, we'll look at more of that as the angel tells him what to name him and who he is and how the prophecies are being fulfilled here. Uh, But it's interesting that the Holy Spirit is breaking into the natural world. And I was just reading last week a biography of a seminary professor and a pastor named Jack Miller that had really impacted me because in Jack Miller's life, he grew in his understanding of how the gospel broke the imminent frame of law and the natural order of things, how God's grace changes our hearts. The way Romans 3.26 describes this is it says, God is both just... It's the phrase that we were told about Joseph, right? Joseph was just, so he's going to obey the law. He's going to do the right thing. But it says God is also the justifier of sinners, the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. So there's justice, and then the Bible says, you know what, though? There's something more. There's grace. There's mercy. There's the intervention of God. And we want to keep our minds open to that. Well, Jack Miller is known for a lot of great quotes. He's kind of a mentor of some of my spiritual mentors. Uh, Jack would often laugh and say some quotes like this. You've probably heard a lot of variations I've quoted to you over the years. One of them is, cheer up, you are far worse than you think you are. That was his kind of bad news of the gospel. Cheer up, you're far worse than you even realize. And then he would answer that with, cheer up, God's grace is far greater than you ever imagined. So he always liked to, to share those kind of two cheer-ups. The book, the biography, which is coming out soon, is Cheer Up. That's the name of the biography of Jack Miller. So cheer up. You're worse than you think. You really are a sinner. You really have an issue of separation between you and God. But the other side of that is cheer up. God's grace is richer and better than you realize. His love for you is, is deeper and broader than you ever imagined. In the 70s, though, Jack was going through a personal revival, a change in his understanding of his own ministry and work, he started to realize that he needed to rely more on the supernatural. He needed to break out of the imminent frame, and he needed to have a greater expectation that God would move supernaturally in the world. Again, moving supernaturally to help people believe in the gospel and grow in the gospel. Those are the big miracles of the New Testament. And so Jack added this phrase in the 70s, when he was in his middle age and going through this kind of personal revival, he added this, cheer up, God's spirit works in your weakness. The biography says this, as he began to take small steps of obedience and trust that he was in partnership with the Lord, bigger things began to unfold in his life. As bigger things began to unfold, he began to realize increasingly his helplessness and inability. Do you see that? 
as you step out in faith and you start praying and asking God to use you, He's going to use you. And you're going to be walking into scary new areas beyond your natural, imminent frame capabilities. You're going to be stepping outside of the frame. You're going to be doing new things that are scary for you, that may expose your weakness, that may expose the lack of your flesh's ability to finish whatever project you've started. Well, Miller was engaging in this more and more. The more Jack saw his helplessness and inability, the more he prayed. The more he prayed, the more open he became to God's promises. And the more he relied on the Holy Spirit's wisdom and strength to enable him to stand and move forward on the sure foundation that he had in Christ. I'm sharing that because I think it's an example of someone living out what Joseph learned in the text. Joseph learned, oh, sometimes God is doing more than I can see in the immediate, close, imminent frame. And God wants to use me to do great things. Joseph was obeying the law. He was using his own common sense. I highly recommend that to you. Those are two good traits. But he was also open when the Holy Spirit said, hey, there's more happening here. There's something else going on. I want to use you to do even more. I want to use you to do more than just justice, right? Romans 3.26, God is both just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. God wants to use you and me in the same way that he was using Joseph. He wants us to learn to depend on the Holy Spirit in new and often scary ways. Um, So here's what this can look like in our lives. Uh, Number one, do your logical, lawful things, right? Obey God's standards of morality and use your common sense. I'm not saying to break with that. I'm saying pray as you do it. Do what you know is right. Obey your common sense. Obey your conscience. Pray that God would break in and disrupt your frame of reference. Say, God, if you want something more out of me, if you want to show me a new way, if you want me to apply the gospel in an unusual way in the circumstance, will you show me? Will you help me? Will you keep me open to your wisdom? Pray that God would continue to intervene by spirit in your life. Another thing I'd like us to do is ask what we fear. So I don't know if you noticed that in the text, Joseph is doing the right thing. He was being just. The angel said, nope, we got more going on here. Hold on. And said, do not fear. Do not fear. So a real good question for us is, what do we fear? What is your worst fear? What keeps you up at night? What gives you nightmares? What upsets you? What gets under your skin? Often there's a kernel of truth that that is a a right thing to be afraid of, you know, it's a right thing to be upset by. But ask yourself, Lord, is there something I'm relying on too much instead of relying on you here? Remember that we can cast all our cares on the Lord because he cares for us. We can give our fears over to God. Right? There's, again, common sense, imminent frame, natural fear that's right and good, right? Right? There's appropriate fears, but say, what am I really afraid of? And let me put those on the altar and offer those to Jesus. Jesus, I give those to you. Can you help me to not be fearful in the wrong way? Can you help me to trust you in in new ways and to be filled and guided by your spirit? And then finally, just ask God to give you that new sense of depending on his Holy Spirit. That God would allow you that joy of stepping out of the imminent frame. Again, not throwing it away. Christians aren't those who throw away science and throw away the natural world. We just say, God, will you teach me to depend on your Holy Spirit? Will you break in? I don't know when I need to do that. Will you show me? Will you guide me? Will you fill me with your Spirit 
and help me to live in this new way. All right, second point, love saves us from our sin. Love saves us from our sin. The only way we can step out of the imminent frame, have our frame of reference disrupted, is if we recognize what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the one that saves us from our sin. Verse 21 says, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus, uh, Jesus comes from the Greek, Jesus, Jesus comes from the Hebrew or Aramaic of Yeshua, Yeshua from the uh, Hebrew, Jehoshua or Joshua, you know, in English, the other way we say that same name is Joshua. In Hebrew, this is a very common name. This is a normal name, right? Bob, Mike, Jack, Chris, I don't know, what are the common male names today? This was just a common normal name. And this is a really beautiful picture here because this is just like Jesus, right? He was born of a woman. He was a human who was answering the prophecy of Genesis 3.15 that says a human is coming that will defeat sin and evil once and for all. That's who Jesus was, an ordinary human with a really boring, ordinary name. To us, it's really special because we've translated it five times and it sounds weird in English, but it was just a normal name. It was just Joshua. It was just a regular Hebrew name. It was very common in that day. But what does the name mean? Joseph was told, name him this. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. Yeshua is Yahweh saves. That's what the name means. Jehovah saves. The God of the Old Testament saves. And he's like, just to be clear, that's the name, and this is what it means, and this is what it will do. Just to be clear, he's also the fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah 7.14. Isaiah 7.14 is quoted in the next verse. Matthew 1.23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So his name that everybody called him was Jesus, but they, people will look at him and say, that's God with us, right? Sometimes we get confused. We're like, well, which, what, what was his name? Was his name Jesus or Emmanuel? Well, his name was Jesus. But people talked about him as the Emmanuel. He was the one that showed us that God is really with us. And it's interesting because Emmanuel as a promise is the most common promise of the Old Testament. That's the thing that God says again and again. He's like, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be with you. We see it most clearly in Jesus. Jesus is the one that seals the deal. And how does he do that? By saving us from our sins. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So, Joseph, son of David, you're in the official line. I'm commanding you to adopt this son. Keeping the son... And naming the son is basically Jewish adoption. That was basically what that meant. You're naming him. You're taking responsibility for him. He's now in the line of David through Joseph. A lot of commentators would believe he's in the line of uh, David through Mary as well, but we don't have time for that discussion right now. And he named him Jesus, which means he will save his people from their sins. That's who he is. That's what he does. I grabbed a picture here of a lamb, a sacrificial lamb bound to be slaughtered. Throughout the Old Testament, there are multiple different sacrifices. There were yearly sacrifices, daily sacrifices, weekly sacrifices, monthly sacrifices, holidays, festivals, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. There was the Passover, right? 
We celebrate the new Passover when we take communion together as Christians. We're celebrating where Jesus gave new meaning to the Passover. So the Passover was a yearly festival where they celebrated that a sacrificial lamb had been sacrificed to save them out of their slavery in Egypt. And they would have a feast every year to commemorate this, to renew their identity, to say we're the people that God has saved by the sacrifice of this lamb, and he's made us his people, he's adopted us, forgiven us for our sins, right? All of the Old Testament sacrifices picture these key elements. A sacrifice needs to be made. Our sins keep us from the presence of God, but God wants us to come into his presence. So these sacrifices are made. And the book of Hebrews clarifies for us that all of those Old Testament rituals were broadcasting and alluding and implying and pointing towards a deeper reality. That they were all symbols and pictures, shadows, the substance The reality is in Jesus himself. So when Jesus came into that final last supper with his disciples, and he said, this Passover meal that you guys have been celebrating for hundreds and thousands of years, this is actually about me. He says, the bread is me, the the cup is me, I'm the point of the Passover. Jesus was saying more than just this festival, this feast, right? More than just a ritual, Jesus was saying everything in the Old Testament is pointing to him. He's the one that will save his people from their sins. He's the fulfillment of these Old Testament prophecies. How do we apply this? We have to ask ourselves, what do I think saves me from my sins? Now, because most of you are Christians or you've been around Christian terminology long enough, your first answer might be Jesus. What I want to press you on is what is your heart answer? And the way it's helpful to think about this is what makes me feel okay? What makes you feel okay? Another way to say it is, what makes me feel secure? That's often the functional Savior we're leaning on. Now, God gives us blessings in life, and I don't believe that the goal is to to burn down every positive, okay feeling in, in our life so we can depend on Jesus more fully. I think the process is to name that and say, you know what? I've been leaning on the money I've got in the bank. That's where I'm really looking to feel okay. What I need to recognize is that money is a gift from God to use for his glory. And that might help me feel secure temporarily, but it's just a pale shadow pointing to a deeper security of a God who's paid my ultimate debt by dying on the cross for my sins. Maybe your security is in relationship. Maybe you've got a great family. My kids are home from college. This is a sweet time. Love having them back. I love them so much. It's awesome. It's just fun to be around them. They love the Lord. They're grown-ups now. They encourage me in my own walk with Jesus. But that's just a pale shadow of the true family we have with God. We were complete outsiders, covered in our shame. He took our shame upon himself on the cross, and he adopted us into his family. We belong to him. We know true love now in Jesus. We're adopted by the Father's love through Christ. What are the things you look at to feel okay, to feel secure? Look at those things. Thank God for them and say to God and to yourself, that's not my true security. Jesus is my ultimate security. That's not my true okayness. Jesus is my true okayness. I am a sinner who has fallen short of the glory of God and none of these other things can fix my sin problem. 
sin, anything we say, think, or do that's displeasing to God, nothing can fix that sin problem except for the cross of Christ. Another way to define sin is Romans 3.23. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. That means even more than the things we think, say, or do. That means we're not doing and living and being the glorious perfection of God. We're falling short of that. That's what he built us for. We're not living up to it. We're not reflecting his perfect beauty and goodness. Jesus took that upon himself. Are you clear on that? Are you trusting in that? Is that your foundation for everything else? What Jack Miller in his biography learned is that's the most important foundation to trust in that reality. Cheer up. You're worse off than you think. You're a sinner. And cheer up. God loves you more than you can imagine. The cross. Jesus came for you. He was born as a baby. He lived a perfect life. He died a sacrificial death. But cheer up. God will meet us in our weakness. He will grow us. So again, the two big miracles that we live with, the big ways we look for the Holy Spirit to invade our world, our salvation and sanctification, our trusting in Jesus to forgive our sins, and then living in dependence on the Holy Spirit so that he would transform us. Galatians 5, 22 and 23, actually living out faithfulness and kindness, joy, patience, love. God will transform our character. I want to end here just coming back to the biblical definition of love. So I said, my wife and I put James, uh, 1 John, 1 John 4.19 into our rings. We love because he first loved us. If you back up in 1 John, he gives a lot more clarity as well to how we define love. John says this in the short letter of 1 John, 1 John 4.9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That means it was displayed in our world that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. So what is Christmas ultimately about? The love of God being manifest, shining out in the world. God sent his son into the world for us on this rescue mission. 1 John 4.10, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Other translations say the atonement for our sins. Propitiation means he's pleased with us. Atonement means our sins are covered. Both of them get at this important truth of what Jesus accomplished by dying on the cross for our sins. What does John mean there? He's like, it's not really so much love that we love God, but primarily it's that God loved us. And that's defining the first John 4.19. We love, we do love, and that's an important manifestation of it, but it's because he loved us first. We've got to get that right. We've got to look to God as the initiator, the beginner of this love. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you love us so much you sent your son for us. Will you renew us, Father? Will you make us new? Will you help us to trust in this saving, forgiving, atoning, propitiating love that you have for us, that you're, you're pleased with us in Christ? And then will you change our character? Will you fill us with your Holy Spirit that we would depend on you more, that that we would reflect more your love for others, that we would love because you first loved us. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.